The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And today I have one of my favorite people on the show, uh, Mary Stutz, who I've actually done, I've had the pleasure of actually speaking at a number of events, including some at the W2O offices. So first of all, welcome, Mary. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. And you have an amazing story. Um, So I guess for starters, I'll I'll give Mary's title. She's relatively new uh, as the SVP of Corporate Communications and Corporate Relations at Sumit Avant Biopharma. She is also the founder of the Center for Excellence in Life, which we're going to spend a decent amount talking about. But one of the things that I like to do, Mary, is I like to start with our guest's background. And you teed this up perfectly in your bio, and most people don't go all the way back to age five. Um, But, you know, I've heard about you talk about the impact of growing up as a foster child from age of five and how that experience created a passion in you for supporting, nurturing, and developing youth and professionals as they aspire to leadership positions and entrepreneurship. So let's go back to those early days and what was that like and what was it that, I think it's probably a little bit rhetorical, but that inspired you to give back so much you know, today and really to create such a light and, and beaming light in, in so many people's lives. Well, thank you, Aaron. I am so happy to be here and to, uh, to share the story and talk about um, all of the experiences and opportunities that make me want to make sure that I'm giving back to others. Um, and so, yeah, at the age of five, my um, parents split up and my mom couldn't handle having five kids and kind of had a, a breakdown and had to be hospitalized. And so we were, we were split up. Um, and my two older sisters actually uh, were school age, so I'm not ancient, but at that time, <laughs> um, you didn't start school till you were six, and so I was five, and they, um, had, they came to get my two older siblings. We were seven, six, five, and then uh, three and two, so all these stair steps and and split up. And so my foster mother tells me that when they came, my mom had managed to make it from Chicago to Texas, where she had family. Um, And that's where the family was kind of dividing up uh, the kids, not amongst family, but actually strangers uh, for the most part. And um, my um, foster parents came to get my two older sisters because they were school age. And my foster mother was a fifth grade school teacher. Um, and her husband was a Baptist minister, but also a landowner and a farmer in Louisiana. And they drove to Texas. And she said that as they were loading my sisters into the car, I was standing on the porch looking at them. And she said, all of a sudden, just before they closed the door, I jumped off the porch because we were in Texas. They had porches and ran across the yard and then jumped across the ditch because they had ditches in Texas and jumped in the car and said, huh, you think you're going to leave me, but you ain't. And it was my foster father who didn't have the heart to put me out of the car. And he said, let's take her. And maybe your mom, uh, who we call Big Mama, uh, but my foster mother's mom, can keep her during the week, and then uh, she'll come with us on the weekend. So that's how I ended up going. But but my my foster mother told me that story because she wanted me to understand how I've always had a voice, 
And so she always talked to me about my voice and using my voice. And, and I learned at an early age to speak up for myself. You know, I learned that if you say something, you can change your circumstances. And I still think that's my superpower is my voice, whether it's spoken word or written word. Um, and so that experience of living with them, having um, the foster mom who was the fifth grade school teacher who became the first um, special education school teacher in the state of Louisiana because she believed all children could learn. And she always told me I could do anything, I could be anything, and I saw her achieve so much. And, uh, and so I took that. But the thing that struck me most, which is why I formed T-Cell, was that this family who took me in, and by the way, that's a whole nother story. People tell me I should write a book, but my foster father uh, was the son of uh, children who were, his, his father and mother were both children of, of slave owners who had a child by a slave. And so um, because his foster grandfather was sterile, or the, somebody was sterile, he didn't have any, his, I guess his wife was sterile, but the only child, the only heir he had was the son that he had by the slave woman. So when he died, he left his whole plantation to, to my foster grandfather. And they raised that. So that's where we went to live. And so where you hear about the South with the sharecroppers and all of that uh, working for white people, we actually, the sharecroppers actually worked for my father and his, and his siblings. But the point was, out of the eight children that my foster grandfather and his wife had, four of them were sterile. And all of them brought in children like me and my sisters as foster children, the ones who had not. And I noticed that when we came together in the summers, everybody came for the 4th of July and we were doing like family reunion things before it was even popular. I felt like we, the foster children, were treated better than the natural children. They, they, they sold so much love into us and, and focused on education and all of those things. And I looked at my life compared to the rest of my siblings and ended up that I was the only one who remained living there with them through a series of circumstances. My two older sisters ended up going back to Chicago with my mom when she got out of the hospital. The younger ones ended up back. Um, I, nobody, well, my one sibling eventually graduated from high school after having two children and uh, finally became a police officer, but nobody else graduated from high school, let alone college. My older sister and younger brother died drug related. So, um, but so, I, you know, I, because of that family sewing into my life, I was able to help my own family. I tried to help myself. I always say I helped the ones I could and I buried the ones that I couldn't mm. um, with my family. And so that's why I formed T-Cell, because I know that, um, unfortunately, underrepresented youth have a lot of challenges coming at them. A lot of times I like to say life comes at us too hard, too fast sometimes. And you need others who are going to be there to help you and nurture you and show you the way, because they don't know. And, uh, and so that's why I formed T-Cell, and that's why, also the reason why uh, we launched our, our program this summer as well. Well, it's an amazing journey, and I, we will talk more about the center in just a minute, so thank you for that foreshadowing. I don't want to skip over the fact that you've had an amazing career, you know, up until now. Um, most people would be lucky if they were able to work at a third of these places, so 
just to name a few, you've worked at Kaiser, Bayer, Genentech, United Health, BMS, Comcast, which is a little bit of an analogy or an anomaly. You and I actually had the pleasure of working together while you were there. And most recently, Stanford Health. Um, talk a little bit about the common thread other than comms, right? Because you've always been steeped in communications and corporate relations. And most recently, uh, had a diversity and inclusion at Stanford Health. But what has been your common theme, um, you know, other than speaking up for yourself, which clearly you do an amazing job at? And I mean that as the utmost compliment. No, thank you. Um, so I think my common thread is really transformation um, and my ability to, my approach to how I do my job. And it's, um, it has been a range of public affairs, corporate communications, corporate relations, uh, which includes the corporate branding and even the corporate social responsibility and uh, diversity and inclusion was always thread through there as a woman of color executive in companies from back to my Kaiser days. So it has always been this kind of melding of the corporate relations profession, but it also is my keen interest in how companies are presented and how we are achieving our business goals and objectives. And so that whole um, you know, transformation process, making sure that in every way that we present a company that it's all about who we are and if we need to pivot and transform that we do that. So for example, um, when I was brought into Bayer, they were just forming uh, their global biotech headquarters in Berkeley, California, and they needed to create that story of who they were, that Bayer is, is moving into the biotech space, they're showing up to play, and we're going to grow organically, but we also want to grow through business deals. And so having to learn about the business, having to grow the business, having to help with due diligence and, and you know, set up these meetings and go to conferences and things where we're trying to talk to people to do deals. Uh, that kind of uh, got me going. But even uh, at Kaiser, when I was there, they did a major re-engineering effort and kind of moved people all around. And I got put into an interim position as a test uh, to see how I would do. Um, but even there, I realized, let me look on the horizon and see what is coming down the pike in the healthcare field and what can we do to kind of own some space here. And that's where I did this first pilot with Harvard School of Public Health around youth violence and their research that said youth violence is really a public health issue, not a criminal justice issue. And I did this great project, got me the attention of the CEO, and then who was my, who was um, not my boss, but the, the person who I reported to, the SVP, was Bernard Tyson, who eventually became the CEO of Kaiser. Right. Uh, but he gave me that opportunity and nurtured me and taught me about being strategic. He was a great mentor and sponsor, um, you know, wrote letters for me to go to grad school, that whole thing. But that set my whole mindset to transformation. And that's what I talk about a lot now. Um, when I uh, was recruited to Genentech, uh, it was kind of a similar thing where they had pretty much been behaving very much like a startup of just, you know, uh, Point, you know, vision that we're doing this drug and development. Okay, now we're doing this one. Now we're doing this one, as opposed to stepping back and telling that broader story of the type of organization we were, where we had 
franchises as opposed to just one product up and down, throwing, wreaking havoc with our stock. Uh, but I also, while I was at Genentech, had the opportunity to do my first listening tour, where when I got promoted to head up the department, um, I had an executive coach from Stanford who said, you know, you should just go listen first before you do anything. And that going out listening, asking the three questions, what's working, what's not working, what are your priorities? I was able to pull some valuable information from the leaders of the organization and other members of the organization, the formal and the informal leaders. And to go to the CEO and the, in the C-suite to say, look, here's what's going on in the company what our leaders are saying. They're saying, where's our new vision? We're, we're almost five years into the old vision. We haven't done any work on that. Where are we going as a corporation? We're doing really well financially. What are we doing to give back? Um, and then the conversation around, um, you know, how to, to put our whole story together. But that resulted in our Horizon 2010 vision, which was hugely successful for the organization. Uh, it resulted in, um, the, we had the pricing issues. It resulted in launching a major initiative around uh, pricing and explaining why our pricing was the way it was and using the voice of the patients who actually benefited from our therapies, talking about how, because of Avastin now, they could see a grandchild born or someone get married or graduate from college. Very successful in helping our image. But also looking at how can we put a stake in the ground from a corporate social responsibility perspective uh, that's different and unique to, to Genentech where our core competency intersects with a societal need. That's where um, I was given the great opportunity of launching their first diversity and clinical trials program. I was given a budget of $5 million. Every one of the C-suite appointed someone from their organization on that uh, committee, and we were able to do some phenomenal work, which has now evolved into their Advancing Inclusive Research Initiative, which is all about diversifying the human genome database. So, and then at United Health Group, I was brought in because they had had a major scandal. And people said that they only cared, they put profits before patients. And they never talked about patients. They did always talk about uh, the finances because of the type of company they were. I had to come in and totally rebrand them. And they were doing great stuff for patients. They just never focused on it and totally rebrand them as a patient-focused company. Um, at Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, they wanted to transform themselves from a pure play pharma, big pharma company, to a biopharma, where they pulled the best of biotech and the best of pharma and recreate that whole image because they had a patent cliff coming. And so we were very successful with that. Last example, Comcast NBC Universal. I felt very much the way you did when the recruiter called me about it. I said, did you read my resume? I'm a healthcare person. I'm not. And, and, and the recruiter said, no, this is why you know it's good to have people who know your skills and your capabilities. And the recruiter said, we know exactly who you are, but we know that you are you excel at helping companies transform. And Comcast NBC Universal is wanting to transform itself from a pure play cable company to a, 
a media and technology company. They want to build a huge presence in Silicon Valley in a big way. They're doing all of these things, investments in technology. We need somebody who knows how to build out that brand, build out the stakeholder, build out the influencers, do all that work. And of course, W2O came in. And actually, W2O came in and helped me at a lot of those companies <laughs> that I just talked about. Uh, so that's what happened. And then, of course, at, at Stanford, uh, they had never had a chief uh, diversity, inclusion, health equity officer before. And the, what the allure for me for that job, even though I'd done a lot of things in the diversity inclusion space, I had not been a chief officer before, but the allure there was the integration of health equity with the diversity and inclusion piece, because to me, that is huge. You want it, you want to make sure that whatever you're doing to create an environment of inclusion, a diverse, what I call inclusive diversity, because companies can be diverse and not at all inclusive. So create this culture of inclusive diversity. You want to make sure that whatever you do to create that culture for your employees, that that carries over to your patients, caregivers, and the communities where you have facilities. Well, you know, that, that leads me to a question. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because you bring it up. And that is we're living through an era between COVID-19 and, you know, some of the racial strife that's going on for good reason. Um, really, a, a light has been shown on these racial disparities, you know, in healthcare. As someone that's studied it and worked in healthcare and seen all ways, shapes and form and as a woman who's a woman of color, talk a little bit about what needs to be done to really make this situation improve and improve dramatically, you know, over the coming years? Thank you. So there, there are several things that need to happen. Um, one of the first things that I think is very critical is that we need more people of color as caregivers. Uh, as much as we want to say that it shouldn't matter, um, it, there is great distrust in the Black community, in the, uh, you know, Hispanic communities and others of healthcare providers, especially physicians who don't look like them. And so until we can do something to address that lack of um, diversity with the actual care providers, we're going to continue to have problems because there's just a lack of trust issue. We had these same issues when I was at Kaiser Permanente, not only with, although they did have more, I would say more black faces, but we had more problems there uh, when you look at the Hispanic community where we had women who had Kaiser, they were Kaiser members and uh, never came in when they were pregnant until they were in labor and, and presented in the emergency room because they preferred to go to a community clinic that had people who spoke Spanish and people who looked like them. And we finally had to start. And once we, you know, realized, look, we can't fight this. Why don't we support these clinics and give them money and support the diverse caregivers so that they can provide the care? And I think that's a short-term fix. But the long-term fix is we've got to do more to get more people of color as physicians because it starts there with that lack of trust and people aren't going to get the care. And then the other piece, though, things we looked at at Stanford and certainly at other healthcare institutions is what kind of care are people getting when they do show up at your institution? Are they being treated the same? The high infant and maternal mortality rate with black women uh, having babies 
is is horrible. Um, and I experienced it myself as as a black mother, and and where you're not treated the same. And um, you know, when you say you're having issues or concerns, uh, difficulty during labor, you're ignored. Uh, but the person in the other room who might happen to be white is getting all the attention. Um, you know, I almost died. My second child almost died. My first child did die uh, of a crib death at two months old. So I know that there is a disparity. People just don't pay as much attention to us. They think that for whatever, I don't know if they think we can tolerate more pain or we don't know what we're talking about or whatever it is, but uh, the disparities are real. And what we want to do is address health equity, Aaron, because if we have health equity, then you won't have health disparities. It's hard to fix health disparities, but if we can start now doing more to focus on making sure everyone is treated equally and getting equitable and equal access to care, to therapies, to clinical trials, to all of these things that's happening for everyone else, to, to options, great options for care. If we can make sure that everybody's getting that regardless of their race, you know, their creed, their gender, sexual orientation, uh, you know, their origins, where they came from. Uh, these are things that um, are going to have to be fixed. I will just add that we have seen, unfortunately, uh, an increase in how people are um, so quick to be racist in their approach, even in a hospital like Stanford, uh, where you have people that don't want to be treated by someone who may appear to be of uh, Eastern descent or, uh, you know, of uh, Hispanic descent or, or Black or whatever. And, and people are so uh, much more blatant to say it and to try to, to say, I don't want to be treated by this person. I want to be treated by this person or to talk very negatively to our environmental services staff and our other frontline staff, even our nurses and what have you. It's a real problem. And so the underlying racism and um, prejudices in this uh, country uh, that has been escalated over the last almost four years now, um, is, is, it has set us back. And we saw that with all of what the unrest that has happened uh, now with uh, the George Floyd killings and all the other killings and the things that we, um, we as Black people and people of color have been saying for years that this is happening. I don't think anybody really believed that it could be that egregious, but for everybody to see this man killed in broad open daylight with no regard whatsoever for him begging for his life. Um, and, I, and I always like to say, Aaron, and I've said this as I've talked to so many people over this summer since everything has, has uh, unfolded, is that when I saw the video of George Floyd being killed in front of our eyes, that didn't make me cry. It made me angry, but it didn't make me cry because we've been saying it for years. But when the protest started, and I turned on TV and saw the massive amounts of people coming out and protesting that were every color, every race, every gender, you know, every sexual orientation. That made me cry because I realized they finally get it. They believe it. The allyship is huge. And that is where until we really have that allyship where everybody believes that 
everybody really cares about them, then we, 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 until we get that, we're not going to see the, the traction that we want to see uh, when it comes to health equity and addressing health disparities. One more thing I would say, um, you know, there, so companies can't really dress, address inclusion. It's the people who work in the companies. And so when we see things like, you know, you hear people saying, and we heard this at Stanford, it's not a, it's not, it shouldn't come as a shock to anybody. Uh, people saying, well, you know, there's not a pipeline. We've got to get a diverse pipeline to get more diverse physicians and more female physicians in here. But the truth of the matter is that the majority of people who get hired at Stanford and pretty much every other company gets hired because they know somebody who works there. So what you're really saying is you don't have a diverse network when you say there's no pipeline. So when we talk about allyship, that's critical, but also expanding your personal network, immersing yourself in other cultures. These are the types of actions that it's going to take for us to make any traction whatsoever. Understanding cultures, immersing, that's why we do things like put it in, in our performance goals that our leaders have to be active in some diverse organization, even if it's an affinity group in their company, that's different than their own affinity. You've got to immerse yourself in other cultures and expand your personal network. So then you'll start to see the equity bringing everybody up and then you'll be able to get rid of the disparities. Well, that was an amazing and thoughtful answer. So thank you for sharing that. And I agree with everything that you just said and hope that maybe you run for office someday because you've got a very powerful platform. Um, that, that is a good segue into talking about the center, right? So you did found recently the Center for Excellence in Life, T-Cell. Tell us a little bit about that. And I'm going to guess that at the heart of that, part of that is giving people, you know, this allyship and giving them opportunities and in, in reverse, giving people like, you know, W2O and Jim Weiss and those that are supporting the internships an opportunity to expand their networks and, and to do that as well. So tell us more about that and, and what inspired you to create it. Thank you. Um, so I created T-Cell actually in 2004. So the, the organization has been around for a while, always focused on helping underrepresented youth, uh, as well as uh, helping women with uh, women in leadership and putting together events and workshops. Uh, we very much partnered with another nonprofit called Worldwide Women uh, on the Girls Festival, which you've heard us talk about that before, the huge Girls Festival yep. that takes place in San Francisco for girls ages eight to 18, hands-on festival, making sure that girls of color from communities where their families probably wouldn't have been able to get them to California, uh, to California, to San Francisco, uh, but getting uh, buses for them and taking three or four busloads of girls to that big conference every year so that they had access as other uh, girls were having. And so that's how we started. We put together, um, you know, a wonderful board of directors who had the same vision for making sure that we are helping to give underrepresented youth and also um, like millennial professionals, uh, underrepresented professionals who are trying to find their way in 
the corporate world when they many times have not come from families where they had anybody had a corporate background. Uh, in my own career, I saw so many uh, women and people of color struggling in their corporate careers because they did not know how to um, conduct themselves and how to advance and, and how to promote themselves and have the right conversations and find mentors. That's why I wrote the book, The Missing Mentor, but it's also how I, uh, why I founded the organization. So I did things and still do things through T-Cell like uh, career development planning, uh, because that's another thing where we're seeing people of color aren't getting opportunities to have career development plans to say, here's where I want to go in the next two years, three years, five years, and help me create the path to get me where I want to go. They're not getting access to that. So we do those things. Um, so, but this summer, as I was um, looking at, even in my own uh, company, we, um, since we are not in the office, we decided to have um, a virtual intern um, and so we have, I have a virtual intern that I'm sharing uh, with another department, and this intern is, is actually based in Boston. And uh, there was one of the organizations who did a program to talk about how to do the virtual internships and brought together a lot of companies to talk about it. During the course of that conversation, what came out is the massive numbers of companies that canceled uh, their internships this summer due to COVID. Um, and due to people not being in the office and so forth. Um, and as I was sitting listening, being a, a young person of color and knowing that summer is probably the most dangerous time for uh, youth of color, inner city youth, youth in urban areas, uh, if they don't have anything to do. Um, you know, going back to Chicago when I left Louisiana and living there for some years before moving to California, I know that that is a dangerous time. And so when I heard that, I thought, you know, between the racial injustice and the anger uh, that's happening from seeing what all is happening with the injustice um, and the George Floyd killing and the protests, uh, the frustration of not being able to get jobs because of COVID-19, many of those jobs that the youth normally got in the summer, grown people are applying for those jobs because they've lost their jobs. Right. And so the jobs are not going to be available. The internships are not going to be available. This is a recipe for a disaster. And that's when I realized we can't let this happen. We can do virtual internships. We don't have, we're not limited to any one category. I reached out to the board. I reached out to my network. Jim Weiss was actually my kind of my first uh, fleece that I put out to say, Jim, listen, you know, I, I, I'm very concerned about what I see brewing and coming together right now. It's a recipe uh, for a disaster. And I'm concerned about the well-being and the focus and the future of our black and brown youth and our underrepresented youth right now. And this is what I want to do. And he was one of the first ones who came on board and said, we'll sponsor, we'll sponsor with W2O. My wife and I will give a personal uh, match. And so I said, okay, so people get it. It's not just my imagination. And so talking to my board, they jumped on. And so we launched it and we just started with word of mouth. I sent um, an email out to the mailing list for T-Cell that we were going to launch this over the summer. And this was the beginning of June. And um, we thought, personally, I really thought we'd get about 30 kids. And 
the last day we were at like 84 kids who had applied from all over the country. And, to, and one of the requirements to apply was they had to write an essay. And as I was reading all these essays, as the applications were coming in, it just validated what I knew was the case. These kids were saying, I, you know, I was guaranteed an internship, but now the company has pulled out. I can't get a job. Uh, some of them, the 17-year-old young man down Southern California, I'm in, uh, you know, he's uh, Latino, and he said, I'm the only one taking care of my family right now because both my mother and my father have lost their job. And so I've got to keep going. And that's also the reason why I wanted to make sure we, the reason I was doing fundraising is because I want to give them all a stipend. It, it's not a lot, but it's something because they need to understand uh, that their time is worth something and that we care about their time. It's valuable and, and we want to give them something for doing it. So, um, you know, so that's what we're doing. And other companies have jumped on board um, and the youth are loving it. And we created what we call master mentor sessions. So this is where we have professionals like uh, folks from W2O, from all the other companies. We have four tracks. It's STEM, uh, which is really STEAM. Uh, we have a communications track, uh, fashion track, and digital entertainment. Those are the four. Uh, and what's so amazing is probably half of the kids checked all four. <laughs> and they want to do all four, but that's okay because I love it. And these are junior and senior high school students and freshman, sophomore college students because this is the group that's being left out. I think junior and senior college students are you know, doing better and they have more opportunities. But this group is so fragile and at a very crucial stage in their lives. And just as we thought, um, this, is, this is an amazing opportunity for them. And the master mentors, they're getting access to these phenomenal folks. We have CEOs from biotech companies. We have chief medical officers. Uh, we have entrepreneurs. Uh, we have engineers. Uh, we have a great um, entrepreneur and MIT graduate who was employee number four at Dropbox, an African-American young man who is now, um, uh, has, he's an entrepreneur and has started several uh, companies with venture funding. We have uh, Morgan Stanley that has one of its sports and entertainment VP as one of our folks. And the master mentors are so diverse. It's every nationality. It's every age group. Um, and to your point, people were so excited to take advantage of this opportunity, the, the executives and the professionals to sow into the lives of these young people. And they are just loving it. And they're loving hearing the stories uh, of the master mentors and what they themselves have overcome to get to where they are. Um, and so it, it's, it's just a great experience. It's our inaugural one, our first time doing it. We laid the track as we were going. I, fortunately, I had some amazing volunteers who stepped up to be team leaders because we, there's no way we could manage 85 you know, youth as, as one group. So uh, you know, having the team leaders to help us organize and do the career tracks and all that. And we are just having a blast. We're two weeks in, um, and so they are loving it. And their final project the first week in August is um, that they have to do a final project. And they will present to our virtual leadership panel, which will be CEOs and executives uh, from many of the companies um, that are sponsors as well as people who just volunteered uh, to be a master mentor. So it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience. 
That's awesome. And I know I have a couple of uh, fun questions before we wrap up, but let's make sure we get the ask in since we have a lot of people who are professionals listening. If someone wants to get involved or they want to do something to help move this program forward, what can they do and where should they go? So they should reach out to well, our website is the excellentlifecenter.org. Um, and so they can go onto our website to get some information, uh, but they certainly can reach out directly to me, M Stutz at the excellentlifecenter.org. Um, and so that is a, a great way to do more if they have, uh, you know, if they're interested in spending an hour being a master mentor uh, to talk through uh, their career, to talk through potential ideas for special projects. Um, we still, we, we, um, we actually were planning to give them, in true confession, we were actually planning to give them more, uh, a larger stipend when we thought we would have like 30 or 40 kids. Uh, but once we got 84 applying, we had to cut that stipend in half, but we don't give the stipends till the end of the program after they've completed the whole program that first week in August. So there is still time if people want to uh, give a donation to T-Cell. Nobody on our staff is taking any money. This is going for the youth. Um, and so uh, if people want to donate to help us get that stipend to where I originally wanted it to be, um, you know, we certainly will accept that and we would appreciate it. Awesome. Well, we hope that people do take advantage of that. Uh, so two fun questions, since we've been talking about some very serious topics. With all this COVID in place and the fact that we've all been locked down for way longer than we ever expected, where's the first place you will travel for pleasure once it's safe to go somewhere? So I have a timeshare that I got in Cabo, and I only went there the summer I bought it, like in, what, two years ago or something. And I kept saying every year I was going to go, but I was so busy. And then this was going to be the year. So that's where me and my family are going. Whenever we can go, we're going to go do that first and foremost and enjoy that. Well, it sounds amazing. And not that that's a uh, deserted island, but, you know, it is one of those places people could envision being trapped on. I do always like to ask my guests, you are trapped on an island. You can take one album with you. Which album would it be and why? You know, that is so funny. And now I'm really going to date myself. And there are a lot of albums. I, li I like all kind of music. I like all kind of genres. Um, I like blues. I like jazz. I like gospel. Um, you know, I like reggae. Um, but the one uh, album that immediately came to mind that is my favorite is Carol King Tapestry. Mm. That is a great one. And I think that's made the uh, Rolling Stone top 100. And I want to say it's actually pretty high up on there. So you've got some great taste. Uh, I love her as well. So listen to it over and over again. It's just such great music. And that's the bar, right? It is something where, you know, if you're going to listen to it a lot, it better be darn good. So right. anyway, with that, I'm going to wrap up. This is Aaron Strout, uh, CMO W2O, host of the What's Know podcast show. And we've had the pleasure of talking to Mary Stutz who's the SVP of Corporate Communications and Corporate Relations at Samita Vant Biopharma and not to say more important, but uh, definitely very important, the Center for the Excellence of Life, T-Cell, uh, doing an amazing program. Mary, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Thank you for the opportunity, Erin. Take care. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.